Hey everybody, welcome back to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where an undergraduate philosophy major and his former high school philosophy teacher discuss a variety of philosophical topics in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Wondering what's at the other side of the rainbow, I'm Andrew Graziano. Uh, and wondering what's going on inside the Holy of Holies, I'm Derek Parsons. Welcome to episode 35, where we continue our series on philosophy of religion. This time we're looking at proofs of God's beginning, with proof by definition also called the ontological proof. But first, Mr. Parsons, how's it been going? It's been going good. These last, I think, four episodes we've been recording long before they aired. This is completely opposite. We're recording two days before this one <laughs> is published so uh, this is as as current as it can get for listeners it is mid-july and hot as he double hockey sticks here in houston we've had more days above 100 degrees than than i can recall ever uh, although i'm sure it's happened i think it's supposed to be 104 today so but life is good summer has treated me very well and gee school it's right around the corner i've actually been working on some things. So anyway, yeah. all is well. It's hot. We're staying inside. How are you? Hey, you went to Italy. Did you get robbed? Nope. Nope. So I think I kind of prefigured that in some of my future casts, but I did not get robbed. It was a wonderful, really wonderful experience. Really loved it. Learned a ton. I don't know if people know this, but I'm super interested in medieval history and stuff too. So it was like really awesome to go see that. Mr. Parsons and I caught up in person for the first time in like two years, a few weeks ago when I got back. So uh, I was telling him like, it's crazy that things are older than like the 1800s. And, uh, and I think <laughs> I think that was pretty crazy. But other than that, really cool. I'm just working a ton on stuff finishing up for senior year. So looking forward to that. Yeah, I guess you're like a couple of weeks out, huh? Yeah. So I think I, well, I think I'm a little bit probably six weeks away. So I think we start sometime around August 24th. So have a little bit longer than you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's coming. That's that's okay. I'm really excited. I'm going to teach some new topics this year in philosophy. I'm going to do ethics, which is uh, is like, I think the curriculum calls for 50 hours or so on that. So pretty excited about teaching that. I'm energized about it. Uh, and I haven't taught, speaking of philosophy of religion, I have not taught philosophy of religion in my course in two years. That's also about a 50-hour unit, so I'm very excited digging back into that. Well, I'm really looking forward to today's episode. Uh, but before we get started here, Andrew, just a reminder here that if you would like clarification or have questions or corrections related to the episode, hit us up on Twitter or Instagram or email us at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com and let's continue the conversation. And it doesn't even have to be this particular episode. We'd love to read and incorporate listener mail into episodes, so please give us a shout out at any of those three places. Again, that's Twitter, Instagram, and contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. Today, our episode is focusing on what's called the ontological argument. We'll tell you what ontological means here in a bit, Uh, but essentially it's an argument about the proof of something, in this case, God, 
from purely definition. The ontological argument has a long tradition in the philosophy of religion, dating all the way back to the Middle Ages, the Europe, and uh, is still a uh, an active argument today. I think in the last episode that we talked about philosophy of religion, I think we both mentioned, or if I did, if we didn't mention it, then I'd like to mention it now that philosophy of religion is really a great incorporation into a lot of different branches of philosophy, like metaphysics, epistemology, philosophy of language even, and especially, which we'll see today, logic. So I think it's really exciting. And if you, this series is your first introduction to Open Door Philosophy, where you haven't seen any of our uh, episodes on metaphysics or epistemology principles, then this is going to be a great episode to catch everybody up. So super excited about it. Yeah. Outside of proofs of God, the ontological argument is really great for just understanding logic and syllogisms, which is a fancy word. We'll talk about that in a minute as well. Lots of fancy words in this episode. So we'll talk about all of those as we get going. So yeah, even if you're not interested in arguments about proofs of God, yeah, it's absolutely great for understanding just kind of how logic works and uh, having premises and leading to conclusions that all are at least valid, if not sound. For those who are not familiar with the terms valid and uh, sound, let's do a little bit of explaining of those terms before we dive in, because they're very important. In logic, a argument is valid if its conclusion naturally follows from its premises. So I'll give an example in a minute, but I'll contrast this with sound because I think it'll make more sense. An argument in, in logic is sound if its conclusion follows from its premises as well, but it's also if the argument is true, if its premises are true. So a sound argument is also valid, but a valid argument is not necessarily a sound one. Let me try to come up with a, a valid argument that's not sound off the top of Well, while you're doing that, let, let me throw in, while you're thinking of a syllogism, uh, let me throw in a, a, the, the reason this is important. You know, sometimes in all disciplines, we have particular words that mean something different than perhaps how they're used in uh, everyday language. And a lot of people be like, oh, yeah, man, that's valid. Mm. And when they say that, what they mean by valid is that they mean that that makes sense or maybe even means that that is true. But in philosophy, at least with logic, when we use the term valid with syllogisms, valid means that, like Andrew said, the premises and conclusion all follow or the conclusion rather follows logically from the premises, but the premises may not be true. So the argument is valid, but not sound. So it's not true. So how we use those terms colloquially uh, sometimes is different than, than when we're talking about logic and syllogisms. By the way, what's a syllogism, Andrew? Another fancy so word. Th- fancy word alert. So I think when I'm thinking about syllogisms, I'm just thinking about a collection of premises that lead to a conclusion. I think a syllogism has to have at least two premises for it to be a syllogism, but I could... Uh, yeah, I think that's true, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of a, of a premise... At least two premises and a conclusion. Yeah, that makes sense. Because if, say that we had, well, let me go over this and I'll say why it can't be just one. But yeah, Yeah. it's very basic. So here's a syllogism and it's valid, but it's not sound. So this is what I was thinking of a minute ago. And it might sound true, but I'll explain why it's not in a minute. Premise one, all dogs are yellow. Premise two, I am a dog. Therefore, I am yellow. see. You see, uh, 
obviously premise one, all dogs are yellow. You know, that's not true. We can look out, we can see that there's many different types of dogs ranging in a lot of different species, you know, blah, 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 blah. So premise one, not true. Premise two, I'm a dog, not true as well, hopefully, I think. Uh, And so the conclusion really also isn't true. But the premises or the conclusion rather that I am a yellow dog follow from premises one and two. And so all of that together, premise one and premise two naturally make up the conclusion. So it's valid. But since premises one and premise two aren't true, it's not sound. In philosophy too, especially in the analytic tradition of philosophy, and when I say analytic tradition, that just means that we're looking at truth by definition to establish claims. In the analytic tradition, these syllogisms are going to be at the backbone of pretty much all argument. And usually philosophical argument is going to be made by one philosopher making a syllogism by claiming something. And usually if they're at least a good philosopher, but sometimes they're not, but most of the time the arguments that they push forward are at least valid and the argument will come in uh, the clash rather will be that one of the premises is untrue making the conclusion not true so are there instances where a conclusion might be true but the premises might be false oh i would think so i can't think of one off the top of my head but uh sure yeah yeah so i think i think that's true as well and there's a lot of instances, I think. I mean, I, I can't think of one. Well, I'm not going to try to come up with one off the top of my head for risk of making myself seem like a fool. <laughs> but there can definitely be times where a conclusion is true, but the premises are false. And that's often an argument that philosophers make, that a conclusion might come out and say that God is the three, the triple A God. That's the word I used in the last one, the triple A God. God triple is A God. God. <laughs> bringing the people's elbow to church near you. Uh, So so a conclusion could state that God is a triple A God, all loving, all knowing, and all powerful, but the conclusions that they get there might be completely mistaken. And so a philosopher could say, you know, I agree with you that the conclusion is true, but the premises is false. And that's a problem for philosophers because we're not really getting any knowledge out of that statement. So if a syllogism is just like false, but the conclusion is true. It's not really a good syllogism in the same. And I've been tugging for a while. Uh, so Mr. Parsons, if you want to interject <laughs> anything, feel free. Yeah. And so listeners might be wondering, why on earth are we bludgeoning them with this logic talk, which is so compelling and exciting? Well, it does help you construct good arguments. I'll, t- I'll say that. But the fellow that we're going to be focusing a lot on in this episode today is a guy by the name of Anselm of Canterbury. And he constructed an argument based on definition that uh, God exists, and that argument is essentially a logical syllogism. So in order to kind of break down what Anselm is going to talk about, it's important to know how syllogisms work and how premises leads to conclusions and valid and sound and all that good stuff. Let me say one more thing, because I think this might be relevant, an attack on one premise later, or one argument later, rather. The reason a syllogism can't have one premise than conclusion is because that argument would be um, a circular argument. So example of that Mm. is premise one, all dogs are yellow, therefore all dogs are yellow. It doesn't really (laughs) make a lot of sense. And, you know, arguments will 
usually good arguments that are circular or can be argued that they're circular or a little bit more complicated than that, but still good to know. All right. Well, let's move on to a couple other fancy words that I would like to mispronounce for you. So this will also have to do with not only the ontological argument, but the other proofs of proofs of God's existence in future episodes we're going to cover as well. So you have might have heard these before. Maybe we've even used them in previous episodes ourselves. But uh, those two terms I want to bring up right now are a priori and a posteriori. So let's talk about each one of those. Philosophers love Latin, so you know, we just got to roll with it. So here we go. An a priori argument is an argument whose conclusion depends on nothing but the laws of logic and the meaning of the terms used in the argument. There's no need for experiential knowledge in a priori arguments. It's something that exists or is prior to meaning or independent of experience. So this is how Anselm's going to approach his particular argument. Not going to be based on experience. It's not going to be based on some religious experience he had where he felt God or had a vision of God or sees God around him. None of that stuff. It's going to be based purely on logic and it's a priori logic. So, Andrew, like, what, what could be an example of a priori logic? Big Latin term, but it's, it's pretty simple once you think about it. So an a priori example could be bachelors are unmarried men. Another example, three is an odd number. So things that are just kind of like true, like two plus two equals four is a priori knowledge. So if you had a bachelor, it'd be contradictory for a bachelor to be married because by definition, right, a bachelor is unmarried. So again, going back to a priori, it's the idea that the conclusion depends on nothing but the terms of logic and the meaning of the terms used in the argument. So using bachelor, the meaning of the term bachelor is unmarried. So there's nothing else to talk about. Like it's just it is what it is, right? Like no one needs to experience a bachelor, but uh, you just know because that's the definition of a bachelor. Uh, I've also heard examples like if you want to get into geometry, I guess, if this is in fact geometry and involves shapes, yet you could construct an argument that a square has more sides than a triangle. That's dependent on the definition of what a square is and what a triangle is, but there's no experience necessary for that particular conclusion. A square has four sides, a triangle has three sides, and a square has more sides than a triangle. Isn't logic fun? I think logic is really <laughs> cool. <laughs> logic is logic is great, but uh, it's a little uncomfortable, I guess. Yeah. Oh, are you uncomfortable, Andrew? No, I think it's cool. But so I think I think logic. Sometimes logic states very obvious things, but uh, right, it's kind of like math, you know, like uh, sometimes when you're doing, I don't know, if you look into a lot of these really interesting logicians, like uh, Bertrand Russell's probably the most famous logician, I think ever, maybe that's up for dispute, but he's like really known for, or I don't know if he's really known for it, but in some circles, he's known for making this like 378 page proof for uh, one plus one equaling two. Uh, so oh my gosh. And it's it's like an all logic based proof too. So it can seem pretty dumb, but I guess it's important. <laughs> well, it is important. Wow. I've never heard that about our boy Bertrand. Yeah. That's really fascinating. And I think it's not true. 
he he i think his his argument's still not true so it's always fun <laughs> well you know we like to argue in philosophy all right so the other fancy term that's associated with this is a posteriori did i say that right yeah <laughs> you know uh you've taken greek right but you've not taken latin no yeah okay so we could totally be messing this up everyone yeah 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 sure. but we're good with that we're good with that okay so a posteriori is that a conclusion comes after depending on our experience in the world. So, for instance, when Andrew was in Italy and saw the statue of David by Michelangelo, he knew that that's what he was seeing based on all kinds of experience and exposure to the statue throughout his years growing up, right? Online, in textbooks, whatever. David's a very famous statue. And even at the museum, Andrew, you would have seen a placard or some sort of information sign that would have discussed uh, that this is the statue of David and you would know that David is that that is in fact the statue of David by some appeal to authority like a museum official has written that statement so all of that is uh, a posteriori that that comes from experience alone well not experience well I guess experience alone would that be right yeah after the fact right so I think this knowledge can be disproven by one instance of negative evidence, which is just evidence that basically an experience that shows you something that's contrary to this piece of knowledge. So there's this really famous philosopher, Karl Popper, who wrote about negative evidence. I think he came up with it. And I think his example was like, say that we've only seen black swans uh, Mm. in the world. So we come up with this idea in our head that all swans are black. And so from this, this kind of knowledge can be disproven just by seeing one white swan. Uh, so it's, it's, it's definitely a lot more, I don't know if this is the right term, but it's a lot more unstable than a priori knowledge. Is that swan example backwards? You know, like all white swans and you see one black swan or something? Yeah, that's, that sounds right. That sounds right to me, the white swan. Not that it matters. Yeah. But no, you're absolutely right. I think uh, probably a term that some people use with this be called uh, radical skepticism. This is the same argument that people have for things like, you know, are we living in a simulation? You know, you find one little tiny piece of evidence that contradicts and that, you know, knocks the entire house of cards down. And so, you know, if you want to go back to one of our big radical skeptics, that's Descartes, you know, he basically doubts everything until he can come up with some foundation that he exists and then try to build back up from there. So other radical skepticists are from a more idealist, perhaps, camp versus an empirical camp. Science places a lot of emphasis on empiricism and observation, but some people will come back and say, oh, yeah, but ultimately uh, all of that can be flawed because of how you're viewing a thing or measuring a thing or perception or any sort of thing like that. So if you're pure logicians, they'll prefer a priori. Uh, as to a posteriori, because again, that's all based on experience and experience can be flawed. So how this all ties into our proofs of God here, and we're getting ready to jump into Anselm's arguments. So basically, uh, a priori argument for the existence of God starts from the definition of God. So we got to define what God is, but it starts from the definition of God. In effect, they show that existence or being is somehow implicit in that particular definition. 
an a posteriori argument for the existence of God is at least partially based on direct experience in the world rather than by reflection on the meaning of the term. So a priori, meaning of the terms, a posteriori, experience in the world. So for this reason, a priori arguments are called ontological arguments. That's because, and Andrew can correct me if I'm wrong, that's because onto is the combining form of the Greek word for being. And so beingness can come before existence. They show that existence or being is somehow implicit in the definition. So that's how we get to this uh, very fancy word, ontological argument. So, Anselm of Canterbury, here we go. This guy, a saint, cantonized in 1163. He lived from 1033 to 1109. He was born in Italy, but as he moved up in the ranks of the Catholic Church, he was made the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1093, which is a big position in the Catholic Church. That is, of course, before England was the Church of England, back when England was Catholic. So he is often referred to as Anselm of Canterbury, uh, but also sometimes Saint Anselm. But uh, that's really all the bio I have on the guy. I'm sure he's an interesting fella. Lived a, a rich and an incredibly interesting life. But what he's most well known for is the ontological argument. So I'll give you like his basic reasoning, and then we'll jump into the syllogism and we'll pack that a bit with some discussions. Anselm defines God as something greater than which nothing greater can be thought. I'll say that one more time. Anselm defines God as something greater than which nothing greater can be thought. His whole argument relies on this idea of conceivability. All right. So Andrew, a question here before we get going. For a moment, and listeners too, Try and think of something that would be greater than God. <laughs> it can be something small. Well, I think <laughs> you've really put me in a rock between a rock and a hard place. Oh, I know. Uh, Don't worry. You're, you will not get excommunicated for whatever you say next. Yeah, I guess I, I can't really say that I can think of something, something greater than God. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Can you think of anyone or anything that is better than God, like more good than God, you know, because go on the omni traits are omnibenevolent. Is there anything that could be more good than God? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, how about more powerful than God? Like God, by definition, is all powerful. Can you think of anything that's more powerful than that? No. No. God is in all places and all times. Can you think of anything that, that can do that more effectively? Nope. Okay. So by definition, according to Anselm and his claim... God is something greater than which nothing greater can be thought. So if you can think of something that's greater than God, then that thing must be God. Let me say something for all the uh, questioning atheists out here, So, because I, I think it can be a little weird thinking about this. So remember that Anselm is holding that God is all-powerful, all-good, and all-knowing. And so if we think that, say, say we think that something is all-powerful, remember these, this is basically our definitional, definitional makeup of what God is, right? So it is not, let's toss out anything else you think about God. Just say that God is all-powerful, all-loving, and all-knowing. And let's imagine a being 
that is more powerful than something that is all powerful, which is kind of contradictory. So, yes, yeah. I think that's a... And so that thing would have to be God in that case. Yes. And so since you can't conceive of anything that is greater than God, then God is God. And if you can think of that other thing, then, then that must be God. Now, you're right. So for atheists out there in the crowd, you're like, well, this is a ridiculous argument. <laughs> and and we'll have some quotes at the end, some uh, some uh, arguments against this at the end that will appeal to that notion. But I would think that even an atheist who doesn't believe in God does have a conception of God based on what society has has put forth and society has put forth that God is typically all of those omni things. That's pretty well ingrained in Western civilization. And so even if atheist doesn't believe in God, the atheist would think of those attributes even when thinking about God, even though the atheist would believe that God is not real. So that's the first premise of Anselm's syllogism. So let me give you the entire syllogism and then we'll talk about other ones. So premise one, by definition, God is a being greater than which cannot be conceived. Premise two, I can conceive of such a being. Premise three, it is greater to exist than not to exist. Conclusion, therefore God must exist. So if we look at premise number one, by definition, God is a being greater than which cannot be conceived. That premise is probably true. Like, logically speaking, you can't think of a thing that is greater than God. Am I right on that, Andrew? Yes, I think so. Even just by conceiving the senses meant in the literal conception. So just don't pretend that this, like if you don't believe in God, just try to think of a God existing that has these qualities. So yes, I think this would be the equivalent of saying like, I don't I don't know what this is the equivalent of saying, but it's pretty much logically reinforcing. So yes, it's like saying like, well, I was going to say like, saying water is wet, but I guess that's a controversial <laughs> point in itself. So, uh, but yeah, it's basically like I would say saying a circle is round or a circle has no sides or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, this fact alone does not prove God's existence, right? This first premise by itself does not prove God's existence, that God is a being greater than which cannot be conceived. So let's look at the remainder of the of the argument. Second premise, although Anselm does not lay out and by the way, we'll uh, we'll put a link on the website so you can actually read Anselm's argument. That's certainly open source. Second premise, like I said, he doesn't lay out the premise directly in what he wrote, taking what he wrote and creating a syllogism based on his argument. He makes the argument. He just doesn't state it exactly like this in a syllogism. Uh, so premise two is, I can conceive of such a being. Now, that also is true, I think, right? Like any of us, whether we believe in God or not, we can think about, we can conceive of a, of a God that is omnipotent, omnipresent, all-loving, all-powerful, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's the second premise. So this brings us to the third premise. And again, that second premise also does not prove the existence of God. So let's try to move to something based on the first two premises that does lead Anselm to believe that he is come up with a way to prove God through definition. So, Andrew, easy question here, I think. What is better, to exist or not to exist? (laughs) To exist. Now, why is existing better than not existing? Uh, Well, 
I don't know why it's better, really, but I don't know. I guess I can I I can do what I want. I retain some autonomy. I'm real. So I guess that's the reasons why it's better for me. Yeah, it's a tough question. I'll lie. I, I, when I was putting this together and thinking of asking you this question, I myself also had some trouble coming up with why existing is better than not existing. But nonetheless, this is this is Anselm's third premise, right? That is greater to exist than to not exist. So if God is all-powerful, then God could exist or not exist. But if this existing is better than not existing, then if God had the choice to do so, he would exist. That's all kind of wacky. Let me use an example that Anselm uses in his particular argument, and that is of a painter. So think about this. So Anselm uses this example of a painter. And a painter would be something that someone in his time would be very familiar with. They do things like decorate churches and other things like that. So you have a painter, and inside of this painter's head, the painter has an idea for a painting. Let's say it's a landscape, right? Now, this landscape is not real. The landscape is inside the painter's head. So this really only benefits the painter. It doesn't benefit anyone else because no one can see inside the painter's head and see the image that he's thinking of when he thinks of this painting that he's thinking about painting. But the painter decides to go ahead and make this painting that's in his head a reality. And so the painter paints the beautiful landscape on a canvas and is displayed for all to see. And so Anselm's argument here is that the painting existing in reality is much better than the painting existing just in the painter's mind. Because now the painting is available for all. Everyone benefits. And so much greater good. So this is his, uh, this is the example he uses when he's talking about whether or not it's greater to exist than not to exist. I think the example is pretty, that's a pretty good example. Well, okay. So let's get to the conclusion. Now, now again, this is premise three, right? So uh, it is greater to exist than not to exist. Do we call that true? I think this is the one premise that people could call into question. You could also call into question the definition of God, but Anselm thinks he gets around this by defining that there's nothing greater that you can think of than God. So you could call into question the, the premise of definition of God being amazing omni triple a god but this third premise it is greater to exist than not to exist i suppose you could make some arguments about that and maybe that's true or not true which makes the syllogism perhaps not sound but the conclusion here of course is therefore god must exist because existing is better than not existing that's essentially the argument now there was a, another monk who made an almost immediate reply to Anselm when he put this theory out that uh, that contradicts or at least challenges Anselm's argument. So we're going to talk about that coming up in the second half of the show. That's the sound of money. Fresh printed money. 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 Hey Andrew, escape rooms are all the rage. Ever done one? <laughs> I've actually never done one, to be quite honest with you. I don't want to say I'm kind of a cheapskate, but I don't like to spend a lot of money, so uh, do, I have actually never done do one. Do they cost but, a lot? Uh, I, I don't I have no idea. I don't know. I, I have no clue. Uh, but I've heard they're a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of my friends go on them. I'm sure, I, I mean, I think that you're right. I think they're all the rage right now. Yeah, they are around here. 
So I've never done an official one either uh, at my at my school that uh, someone put together a escape room thing for us to do. And uh, infamously, the final clue was how many Reese's pieces were in a jar. We had to count them. But um, <laughs> but no one knew that, of course, it was the final clue. And oh, geez. Yeah, yeah, I see where this is going. Ha- the, the, having the sweet tooth that I have, which is a real problem. <laughs> You know, while people were working through problems and everything, clues, you know, I'd just pop over there and grab a few Reese's Pieces and put them in my mouth. Because, uh, you know, why not? I mean, if you work at school, you know, there's always things that are laying around to eat. Like, that's just the way it is. So funny. So anyway, I, I ate the clue and everyone was quite frustrated with me when they came to the last clue. <laughs> That's so funny. Anyway, that's so funny. Like have have some like chocolate on your on your face. Oh man! I mean, I was guilty of the crime. But anyway, hey everyone, we'd like to introduce today's sponsor. We're so thankful for it. In fact, you might say we're blessed. Inspired by the Big Daddy of Prison Breaks himself, today's sponsor is Saint Paul's Escape Room Experience. That's right. Straight from the man who was in an insolvable prison scenario and had to call upon divine assistance. St. Paul's Escape Room Experience is ready to provide your group with memories to last a lifetime. In fact, an eternity. Oh, yeah. So they have like all escape rooms. They have a, a number of scenarios that you can choose from to try to participate in. So so here's like a list of some scenarios from uh, what they call the classic line. So we have the lion's den in the belly of a well and the fiery furnace, a Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego adventure. For more contemporary scenarios, St. Paul's Escape Room Experience offers apocalyptic rapture, risen from the dead, a zombie scenario. <laughs> the mysterious... <laughs> Gosh, these are so hard to say out loud sometimes. Because they're funny or because they're poorly constructed? <laughs> no, they're so funny. I can just imagine like... I can just imagine like at a Catholic school, like these are what all the nuns are putting together over Christmas <laughs> The mysterious letter. Who really wrote the epistle of Hebrews? Who dat? A doubting Thomas mystery. I hear the doubting Thomas mystery is really, really wild because uh, they like use some prosthetics on a dummy and you have to stick your finger like in the body's side to discover the clue. It's 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 a Caravaggio inspired. <laughs> okay, well, hey, call now to book your next escape room party or go to the website. That's stpaulsescaperoom.com and enter the code ODPBABY. That's O-D-P-B-A-B-Y for a 10% first-time discount. Once again, we thank St. Paul's Escape Room Experience for sponsoring this week's episode. Oh, boy. I think I've, I think, I don't know. I think I've broken Andrew. Oh, gosh. Is that too sacrilegious? No, I, I'm laughing because I looked up that, uh, that website and it took me to some like all the escape rooms in St. Paul, Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I have to admit, I didn't check the, the dot com. <laughs> it's not the exact page, but it's like oh. the best 10 escape rooms in St. Paul, Minnesota. Oh my gosh, that's really funny. Well, hey everyone, our lovely listeners. If you need to escape... Uh, come and listen to Open Door Philosophy. We're so happy that you do, of course, and we thank you for listening. The way you can support us is by following our podcast on whatever 
service you listen to, and spreading the joy of Open Door Philosophy to all your friends and neighbors and people you're people you're ministering to. So thanks for listening, guys. And now back to the show. Okay, so let's get on to our boy Guanilo. Yeah, that's Guanilo. Is that is that right? That's Italian, right? Yeah, you're Italian, right? It's my long lost. I guess it's impossible for him to be my long lost relative if he was a good monk. But Mm, no comment. Wait, didn't like Augustine have children? Yeah, yeah. He had one kid before he was in religious orders. I think uh, was it. Is it Adonis? I don't know. I mean, I guess the church wasn't quite as uh, formalized as it was in Anselm's time. I don't think he was a monk when he was, or he wasn't a priest or anything when he had the kid. He wasn't. No, 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 he wasn't. It was before his conversion. I need to read Confessions again. All right. So everyone, we've laid out Anselm's argument and you get it, of course, because it's not confusing (laughs) at all. Like I said, there was another monk. Guanilo. Here we go. Guanilo. Guanilo, who made, by all accounts, I've read it multiple places, just says an immediate reply to Anselm's argument and wrote back to Anselm. So it's probably some of arguments against it that many of our listeners are thinking of right now. So to sort of summarize what Guanilo said, he says, basically, you can prove anything exists with this particular logic. Because there's nothing special about this this type of thinking. You can prove anything exists with this logic. And he also says, you can't infer the existence of something from the idea of it being perfect. So these are his criticisms. Um, what? I don't know. I, I, I've, I've been thinking about this for, for four years. I think Guanilo, I just was looking up, he, he's actually French, but I guess, I don't know. I guess those borders were hazy back then. Oh, actually, you know, I actually read about that. Uh, yeah, it was like during the... Uh, ha- no, not Habsburgs. Anyway, the border between Northern Italy and France at that time was <laughs> was different. Yes. The way I understand his point makes sense to me. And I think that most like scholars on the topic agree that Guanilo's response is pretty adequate. It's pretty definitive objection. And this is honestly... This is a perfect example of what we were talking about earlier of when an argument's conclusion can be accepted, but the premises can be false. And I think that's, you know, Guanilo is mm-hmm. a monk, a Benedictine monk. He's not going to dispute God's existence or probably not. And so this is a good example of that. I don't know. I, I really don't have an opinion because I, which is bad, I guess, bad for me to say. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it makes sense. I don't think it. it's not necessarily true. And I think this is the mistake that Ansel makes, although I'm not quite sure that like he's assuming that ideas can necessarily cross over in some kind of reality thing. Well, let me give you the example that sure. Guanilo uses, uh, just as just as Anselm used the painter as a as a way to explain his theories. Guanilo uses the idea of an island. So here's how it goes: You have a perfect island in your head. You can't think of an island more perfect. Just for fun, Andrew, what, what's your perfect actually, island? Have I? I don't know if I've ever been to like a real island. I just am imagining like somewhere with like perfect sand and a perfect beach, you know, 
perfect clear blue water, some coconuts, nobody yeah. on the island except some little pigs. <laughs> pigs? I guess you got to... You got to get the bacon. That's right. <laughs> uh, I think my perfect island is actually not tropical. Um, I think I would like get like a northeastern island or something, you know, kind of rocky, some pine trees, cooler weather. I'm not all about that sand. Mm. Just gets everywhere. It sounds like uh, with this Obi Wan uh, Obi Wan series coming out. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> That's like a meme with uh, Anakin. He's oh, like, I know it well. <laughs> you don't like sand. Yeah. I just finished the Obi Wan series. Actually, I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. I, is it? Worth the watch? Yeah, it was all right. <laughs> there's some sand in it. Really? Well, there's lots of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no surprise. There's lots of uh, other parts where, where it's not sand. Huh. Yeah, it was all right. I have some issues with it. <laughs> but hey, anyway. we're not a podcast that reviews Star Wars material. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll do bonus episodes someday. Okay, so so back to Guanilo's Island, right? So. So there it is. It's even perfect for you, Andrew, because you've never been to an island, but you can conceive of an island, yeah. right? So, so that's actually perfect. So back to Guanilo's perfect island. He says that you can have a perfect island in your head and that that island existing is better than not existing. So therefore, you can use Ansel's argument to literally prove anything. So there you go. Now, Anselm has a reply to that. But does the island change anything for you, the island example? I don't think so. Well, I think it is a good response. So it is a, it is a very good counter-argument, I think. And so Anselm turns around and replies to Guanilo. And essentially, this is his reply, right? And it deals, again, with definitions. So an, a perfect island is not what he calls necessary. There are many islands, and there are all kinds of different varieties, as you and I talked about our different islands. Not sure what makes one perfect or not perfect. And even if that island ex- ceased to exist, it, would, it wouldn't matter if it ceased to exist, right? So one of his arguments is that uh, an island wouldn't cease to be what it is, which is an island, if it wasn't perfect. But islands aren't perfect by definition. Perfection is something an island can have, or not have. Perfect is not an essential property of an island, but perfect is an essential property of God, and God is necessary. I think that's a pretty, I mean, the reply is very interesting because it gets into some more little uh, finicky logic. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think with the logic, he can get out of, uh, (laughs) he can get out of it, I think, with the logic that Ansem counters back with which is making this really interesting distinction between something that's contingent or something that's possible and mm-hmm. something that's necessary, blah, 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 more f- very fun logic. And we'll get more into that because I think that aspect of necessary and contingent is really going to lay the, it's going to lay the foundation for the rest of this ontological argument for at least till modern times, and in modern meaning contemporary times for Mr. Parsons and I, mm-hmm. not like modern 16th century sense. But let me say just a bit more about this idea of essential properties, right? So to continue with Anselm's reply or, or to provide some commentary, um, Anselm again says God must, like underline that, God must be the greatest conceivable b- being. God wouldn't be God 
if there was some being greater than God. It's incoherent to think of God as imperfect. Uh, being So, being the greatest conceivable being is an essential property of God. But then because it is better to exist than not, existence is an essential property of God. So to be the greatest conceivable being, God must exist. So that's the logic behind it all. So, so notice this conclusion is, is more than just a plain old, like, God does exist, right? It claims God must exist because God's existence is necessary. And of course, he says, like, so this isn't true of you or me or islands. Islands can exist or not exist. You and I can exist or not exist. We come into existence. We cease to be in existence. Our existence is contingent because we come in and out of being. But here we go. The ontological argument only works for God, says Anselm, because only God's existence is necessary. Boom. Shut. Closed case. Just like the escape room scenario. (laughs) Of, of the fiery furnace, a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego adventure. My favorite, actually. Like I was saying, I think Anselm's counter response and the Guanilo reply, they really provide this really great foundation for uh, how this ontological argument is going to be continued throughout the ages. And it is really continued, I think, Descartes picks up the ontological argument, Leibniz picks it up, Hume responds to it. It's been kicked around throughout the decades a lot of times. When Mr. Parsons and I were preparing for this episode, I think I've heard like there's like 36 replies or something. I don't know. There's probably a lot of replies to it, probably more than that, but uh, it's been kicked around a lot. Anselm's reply created, I think, an avenue One possible avenue which has been picked up is what's called the modal ontological argument, and modal is just basically referring to a a system of logic. And this modal ontological argument is pretty simple, and it's been picked up by, like I was saying, a lot of people as well. One very famous person, or one famous philosopher who's actually still alive is uh, Alvin Plantinga came up with this really interesting argument, basically a maximum greatest being, which is you know, basically straight from Anselm. It, what he, he does here is he does something interesting. So I'll read the, the proof out that he presents and then we'll talk about it. So this is the basic syllogism of the modal ontological argument. Premise one, God is possible. Premise two, God is not possible or God exists in all possible worlds. Three, God exists in all possible worlds, which follows directly from one and two. Therefore, God exists is the conclusion. This is this is another one of these really finicky logical arguments. So let me just start off with premise one with God as possible. This is basically coming from Ansel in the same way that saying uh, at least God is, you know, it's something that we can imagine. God is a being who we can imagine, maximally greatest being. And in, in that, I'll get into premise two. Either God is not possible or God exists in all possible worlds. What he's doing here is pretty interesting. So either God is not possible, so God does not exist, we can't imagine him, 
or God exists in all possible worlds. What he's doing there when he's saying God exists in all possible worlds, really this the second premise is making a distinction between either God being contingent or necessary. Necessary means that if we imagine all possible worlds, God exists in all of them. For example, something that exists in all possible worlds is anything that's really a priori. Two plus two equaling four, five being a prime number. So something like that is necessary. If something's contingent, it doesn't have to be true in all possible worlds. And that's what either God is not possible. It means God is not possible in all worlds. So we can think of a world where God exists and another world where God does not exist. Premise three, God exists in all possible worlds. And this really follows from premise one and premise two. Remember, in premise one, we said God is possible. And then in premise two, we said either God is not possible or God is possibly exist in all possible worlds. That's an or statement. And so the first part of that or statement, God is not possible. It's not true because of premise one, God is possible. So that means that the second part of that or statement is true. God exists in all possible worlds. So that's how we get premise three. And then from that, since God exists in all possible worlds, God is a necessary being. Therefore, God exists. What do you think about that, Mr. Parsons? Oh, you're great. <laughs> hey, look, either you like logic or you don't. <laughs> I don't know that there's a middle ground. There is a middle ground. But this episode, if you're unfamiliar with this type of thinking, certainly exemplifies why some people might run the other direction yeah. when they think about philosophy. I mean, as far as syllogisms go, I mean, it, it's a fine syllogism. But I will say, this is the beauty of the ontological argument. It doesn't have to rely on experience. Like we said at the beginning of the episode, many people will view radical skeptics will view experience as being possibly flawed or faulty or misleading. So when we, someone says something like, oh, I know God exists because I feel him in my life or I see his presence in my life and people will become emotionally moved in religious services. Some people will say there's biological explanations or psychological explanations for that, et cetera, et cetera. And you can call a lot of things into question. Whereas with the ontological argument, none of that's in play. It's all, it's all logic. And so that's kind of the beauty behind it. So I guess that's what I have to say <laughs> about the modal. Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's one of these arguments that's very, very logical. And not, I'm not saying that in like the necessarily good way. Like when I say like, oh yeah, you're very, a very logical person. It's a different use of the term logical. It's a logic-based argument. It's That's why it's pretty much called the modal argument. Like I was saying, it's, it's entirely based on logic. Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. yeah, you can write that entire argument out in P's and Q's. Premise one, P, not P or Q, Q, therefore. Yep. Definitely like a logic-based argument. I co-sign everything Mr. Parsons said about it being, uh, you know, I, I think that it, it definitely is, has some flaws or it has some objections that have some strength and it has some defenders that have some strength as well. So if you're interested in, uh, in learning more about the uh, modal argument, I highly recommend this great logic YouTube channel called carnades.org. And that's I was reading out the premises that they had on there because I think it's a 
I'm plugging them, but I think it's a great website for learning more about logic. And he has like a bunch of replies to this argument. So I bet. And if you're interested in uh, in a positive, a more positive reaction to it, check out uh, Alvin Plantinga's modal argument. So yeah. Well, no surprise, some people like the ontological argument and some don't. So here's some uh, contemporary philosophers and their uh, statements on it. So we'll start with some some positiveness, right? So Yujin Nagasawa, uh, who is a contemporary philosopher, philosopher of religion, and deals a lot with, or a lot of his papers have been published on the problem of evil. He says that he was converted from atheism to theism because of the ontological argument. And then most recently, Daisy Dixon, who is a philosopher of aesthetics and art, was quoted as saying she thinks the ontological argument is beautiful. And what exactly she means by that, I'm not sure, but she's a philosopher of of aesthetics and art. And when she uses that term beautiful, (laughs) she probably means something that is out of the ordinary in terms of its its, uh, beauty. So... Uh, big fans of that. However, certainly there have been some critics, some rather harsh critics over the years. Arthur Schopenhauer called the ontological argument a charming joke. Robert Nozick once said that the ontological argument is the most famous of all fishy arguments. But my favorite, and I can't wait for Andrew's reaction, he's not seen this quote. My favorite is uh, most recently, as in like just a few weeks ago on the PanSciCast, Another podcast had Richard Dawkins, one of the infamous uh, four horsemen of the new atheist group, but of course a quite accomplished biologist, uh, said this on the Pan Psychast about the ontological argument. I've never found the ontological argument anything but ridiculous. I can't understand why anyone takes it seriously. The very idea that by pure words, you can conclude something about the universe. To me, as a scientist, the point remains that The very idea by sitting in an armchair and logic chomping mere words could conclude something as grand and important as the universe is just demeaning. That's funny. Yeah, no surprise. That's like a very scientist thing to say. But I would respond by saying, really, what's the difference between any logic chomping and this any given math proof too? Uh, so that's why I'm thinking it's very like it's very science based in the sense that he's trying to make an empirical argument or he's saying something's ridiculous on the basis that it's not an empirical argument. But there are certainly arguments that exist that I'm sure he would find plausible that are not empirical, like anything in math or other logical statements, too. So but that's funny. I can totally see where he's coming from. And I might even agree with him. I haven't thought about it enough, but let me say one one thing that's that's definitely Dawkins would feel that would be a logic chomper, and we talked about it before. Just I want to plug this because I think it's interesting. So uh, there's this very famous logician and mathematician named uh, I think Gödel or Gödel, um, and he's very famous for writing this incompleteness theorem, which actually so a lot of if you're interested in math, you'll you'll probably have heard of this incompleteness theorem. Um, and that was actually one of the things that disproved Russell's one plus one equals two arguments. Very famous for this incompleteness theorem. He wrote an ontological proof that's purely in uh, symbolic notation. So it's just logic, but using symbols. Yeah. So it's like, oh gosh. Yeah. It's just, it's pretty crazy. 
check it out if you're interested. Isn't there something like 14 premises or something involved with that? Yeah, there's a there's a ton. So it's based on like axioms and definitions and and theorems, but it, it it turns out to be quite a lot of lines. That's a big old syllogism. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really interesting. <laughs> but what's really cool, and so if Dawkins was attacking something like this, actually, let me say this first. So what's really cool is that there's these computers now that basically their entire job is to test mathematical theorems and stuff. So it's like a theorem proving machine. And these two mathematicians have basically reformulized Gödel's or Gödel's or Gödel's or whatever, however I pronounce his name, his proof into being something that, so they had to reformulize it a little bit. They computer verified uh, Gödel's proof, which is pretty cool. And so Dawkins would say it's like these axioms, which are basically just like natural assumptions that we're making in proofs are wrong. And that's what would be. But I still think that's pretty cool. Okay, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening today. We really appreciate it. We had a good time. We hope you did too. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. Uh, remember to tune into our next episode, which will be a continuation of our series on philosophy of religion. So make sure to check us out in the next episode. Yeah, that's right. We're doing the cosmological argument next, uh, which has to do with the origins of the universe, which I think everyone will find very interesting. So anyhow, make sure you check us out on all those places we mentioned earlier. Good old Twitter and Instagram and Oh, email us. That's right. At contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. Thank you for listening and spending your time with us today. Remember, if your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. See ya. See ya.